right. So I have been looking forward to this episode. I think since I first picked up uh, my copy of Motivational Interviewing in Nutrition and Fitness, I read it and I think I actually, I was on the internet and I was like, I have to talk to the author. Like this book was so good. I need to learn more. Um, I've been lucky to have talked to today's guest, Don Clifford, um, on a few occasions. And every time I learn something new and it's so valuable to me as a coach um, that I was like, I, I want to be able to bring this out to the world. And I'm so excited that Don's here. So to tell you guys a little bit about Don. Uh, so Don Clifford is an associate professor, professor at Northern Arizona University. Uh, she's also the co-author of my favorite book in the world, Motivational Interviewing in Nutrition and Fitness. And she's a member of the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers. Dr. Clifford uh, is, uh, she also conducts research and is an accomplished speaker in the areas of motivational interviewing and non-diet approaches to health and wellness. She teaches courses in nutrition education and counseling and has experience implementing and directing university-based health coaching programs, which I think is awesome because not only it's the science of how does this stuff work, but actually applying it. And as we all know, you can read every paper that you want, but then you work with a real person and it's very different. So Don, thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited for this. Um, talk to us a little bit about you know who you are and, and how you've kind of gone through this journey to become uh, not only an expert in nutrition, but I think an expert in people too, right? Motivational interviewing is very much so about the person. Absolutely. Thank you, Stan, for having me and for that great introduction. And it's so fun to get to talk about a topic that I'm so passionate about. So thank you for this opportunity to speak from this platform. So I'm also a dietitian in training or a dietitian. I'm a trained dietitian. So I've been a dietitian for 20 years and um, started off my career as an outpatient dietitian at a VA hospital where I had the opportunity to see patients um, as many times as they wanted without having to worry about copays and fees and everything, which was a really beautiful way to start my career because I really had the opportunity to coach people and get to know them um, very well. And I started off my career uh, as what I like to call a diet dietitian. I put people on diets and I focused on weight loss and I helped them um, lose weight. I ran a weight management program at the hospital where I worked and uh, really enjoy getting to know the clients. And um, I had them count calories and I had them get on the scale each week. And I um, watched them lose weight only to gain it back. And I never thought for a second that there was anything I was doing wrong. Um, I felt like from the day one as a dietitian, I was always compassionate. Um, I really feel like even though I didn't know motivational interviewing at the time, I just sort of had this non-judgmental, compassionate, caring nature about me that I thought for sure I was, you know, providing the best service and why they lost weight and regained it was maybe, you know, had to do with them and their issues with self-control. Well, fast forward a few years, I went back to get my master's degree um, and my PhD at Colorado State University. And I had the opportunity to work as a dietitian at the university setting um, as a campus dietitian. And I uh, started to kind of do the same song and dance and help people count calories and get on the scale. And the eating disorder dietitian caught wind of what I was doing. And she pulled me aside and she said, 
you're going to create more eating disorders on this campus if you kind of keep this up. And I was like, oh, wait, what? Okay, tell me, tell me what I'm doing wrong. And so basically discovered during those years that um, really the approach that I had in, in promoting energy balance equation and calorie counting and uh, getting on the scale was doing more harm than good. And then uh, looking back on, you know, all those patients that lost weight under my supervision only to regain it, started realizing that it was actually pieces of what I was doing <laughs> that was causing the problem. Um, and at the same time, a, a few years later became aware of motivational interviewing. I think I just sort of heard it at a conference, wanted to find out more about it. Um, like I said, it sort of resonated with what I think is sort of my natural way of being in this world and uh, needed, needed to learn more. Um, I started teaching at a university and then um, had the opportunity to teach classes in nutrition counseling and realized I better, I better figure out what everybody's doing. And, and now that there's sort of a, um, a name for how to be with someone, motivational interviewing, I better get trained up in that if I'm going to be teaching the next generation of, of dietitians. So pursued a path to do all sorts of training. Then of course needed a textbook for my course and that's where the Motivational Interviewing and Nutrition Fitness book that uh, Laura Curtis and I wrote came to life was really because I just needed a textbook for my class. So <laughs> I kind of wanted someone else to write it honestly, but I thought, oh well, it's not out there. Maybe this is something I, I do enjoy writing. Maybe this is something I can contribute to the literature. So that's my story in a, in a nutshell of the last 20 years. That's amazing. So I, I told you before uh, all of this, that I was, I, I was going to tell you about how I found, about, found out about motivational interviewing. And I feel like in some ways it's a similar story because I, I actually was a trainer at this big gym and I was struggling with, you know, I, very similarly, I was not trained as a dietitian, but when you become a personal trainer in a lot of ways, uh, you're prepared for programming and movement but inevitably, people come to you and they say, uh, oh, you know, I have all of these different goals and then what do I eat? And you don't really know what to do. And so I read this book on paleo and I was like, everybody has to do paleo. If you eat gluten, you're going to die. And, uh, and I was talking to, I was, I was training this woman. She was a, uh, 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 a professor at a local university teaching psychology. And I was like, I think I'm going to, I told her, I was like, I'm going to fire all of my clients that aren't motivated uh, and aren't willing to do paleo. And, uh, and she was like, you know, uh, you kind of need to read this book called Motivational Interviewing. And so I, I would go and I bought it. And this is before you wrote your book. So I, I bought like the actual like super thick uh, original like version of motivational interviewing, which is like, I think it was mostly for like addiction and like counseling. And it was there's a lot of science in it. So I pick up this book and I start reading it, but I started to read about motivate, like about what motivation was. And I started to see, like, I thought I was going to learn how to give a motivational speech when I first picked it up. I found out that really I was doing everything wrong uh, by not seeing like the, the human first and also by uh, really thinking that motivation was very, was very black and white. Right. And, and like you said, where you're like, oh, I gave you this like perfect diet, like all of the science supports it. I mean, 
paleo are you arguable but like you know you're like i'm teaching you how to create energy balance but you're not sticking to it like it's on you i've done i've done my work i did the numbers right uh and it's very hard right so so where do you kind of see like as far as the the big misconception about uh nutrition it, i think is is that people think that if, when you get the numbers right everything happens but really there's a person on the other end and that's where like understanding motivation comes in right and, and talk to me a little bit about that because your book completely blew my mind on what motivation is <laughs> yeah and i appreciate you sharing that about your own story of, of kind of saying i only want to work with people who are motivated because i hear that line from my students <laughs> all the time and i'm like Good luck trying to find them. Um, but I totally get it, right? Because how rewarding is that to have, to be working with someone who's motivated, makes changes, comes back, did all the things, you know, and you feel like a million bucks. So I understand that desire in us professionals wanting, you know, that to, uh, for our patients. And we want the very best for them, for our clients and our patients. Um, but yeah, I, I think that um, people's relationship with food is so complex and physiology physiology is so complex and so what i learned in graduate school was that the energy balance equation doesn't actually work it works in the short term and it doesn't work in the long term because of hormones in place and basically our body has systems in place to prevent starvation which is awesome right <laughs> it's it's how we've survived you know uh as a civilization that these systems are in place. But unfortunately, those systems that are in place to keep us alive during um, starvation are the same systems that are making people really frustrated when they can't lose weight and keep it off. So I started uh, discovering the literature. The few scientists who looked at weight loss studies at years five through 10 found that weight regain was um, a sure thing. And so then realized, gosh, how important is weight loss to improve health? Are there other ways to improve health since weight regain is so inevitable? Are there other ways to improve health without having um, to lose weight and discovered some new uh, scientific studies that have come out that have found out, yes, in fact, there are ways to support improved health um, without losing weight. But of course, our culture says that um, thinness wins, right? And it says it very... Um, subtly and it says it very loudly um considering superstars like adele who get all this attention for losing weight but um if it's not her it's somebody else right yeah. so our culture is obsessed with thinness and so to sit down with a client and and turn them in on to this idea that we can improve your health without having to change your body weight it's not always an easy pill to swallow for for clients and so um with motivational interviewing too, it's so important to just help the client look at all the angles and look at their relationship with food and look at their relationship with physical activity, look at their body image. And motivational interviewing is a perfect vehicle to really unpack and explore all of those pieces because, um, yeah, it's not just a matter of nutrition education, just teach people what to eat and they'll eat it. It's, it's never, it never works, right? Just to <laughs> teach people things. Um, we have to instead really look at um, food and fitness and all of this more as a relationship um, and explore it at a deeper level. And so that's what I try to equip my students to do, which of course 
requires more than a semester um, that I have to, to really teach them that. And as you know, it's really a lifelong journey of working with people that helps you kind of understand the complexities of all that. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think uh, the interesting thing is you, in, in the motivational interviewing book, uh, in the beginning, you talked a lot about uh, some of the theories that, that act as the foundation, right? So there's humanistic theory and self-determination theory and um, false hope syndrome was a big one. I, I, I remember I, you talked about that and then all of a sudden I, I read all the studies on it. I was like, this is amazing. Um, but I, I think like the, the interesting thing for me was that it was not only learning it, but also then, like you said, it's, it's not like you learn motivational interviewing and then you're just good at it. All of a sudden, then you talk to people and, and you start to like see it happen in, in real life and see these changes that I think are, are so amazing when, when you start to apply some of what you're learning. Um, where, where do you see like a lot of these, these misconceptions kind of come up with uh, people seeing it as if I do the right things as far as energy balance, then inevitably they'll just be successful. And if they aren't, it's their fault. They're not motivated, you know, just do it, whatever. Uh, where do you kind of see those those misconceptions coming up the most? Is it for people that are less experienced, more experienced? Um, where where does it happen the most? Yeah, and we're really kind of talking in this conversation so far, Stan, about two different topics: motivational interviewing, and then you know people's weight concerns. And I love what you mentioned about motivational interviewing taking a full lifetime to get good at. And I do want to just acknowledge that for a moment before I answer that question, because um, so many people, and I wish this was true, oh yeah, you know, purchase the book Laura and I made, or wrote, and you'll, you know, be good at motivational interviewing overnight. And I need people to hear that that's not how it works, right? And so um, reading is helpful, attending trainings are helpful, practicing is helpful, and it's really the synergy of all of that together and years of practicing that leads to that proficiency that we're all sort of shooting for. So um, don't give up. If you're listening to this and maybe you just picked up your first MI book, yeah, it's going to take time and it's going to take, um, even if you're able to do some recordings with friends and listen to them again and kind of hear what you're doing, um, that really helps. Um, but yeah, and then the other topic that you mentioned of, of motivation and um, specifically self-determination theory, which we uh, talk about in our book, um, and the whole idea of that is, you know, there's, there's different types of motivation. There's controlled motivation, and then there's autonomous motivation. And so often um, in our society, and I'll define those, but so often in our society, controlled motivation is what people know and sort of rely on to stay motivated. And so um, basically controlled motivation is um, it's com it's complex, um, but it, in general, it's those extrinsic motivators. So weight loss being um, sort of our society's <laughs> number one controlled motivation. Like I will do this to lose weight, and then you know I will just hope that I keep losing weight. Um, and then also like Fitbits or step counts, you know that is a form of controlled motivation. And generally, those help people get started with physical activity, for example. Um, but they don't typically sustain physical activity because any sort of new gadget, you know, it's kind of fun at first and you're tracking things and you're looking at graphs and then it kind of loses its um, excitement over time. So um, autonomous motivation is really powerful because it gets at the intrinsic motivation of, 
you know, why, what, how do I feel during the physical activity? How do I feel immediately after the physical activity? Is it um, something that lines up with my values? Is it something, you know, I enjoy doing? Do I feel less stressed afterwards? And so um, one of the things we talk about in our book is how to use motivational interviewing to invite clients to sort of think through specifically those autonomous motivators um, by asking questions like, you know, tell me about a time you were physically active that you didn't even notice you were physically active because you were just focused on how much fun you were having. Um, or tell me uh, about um, how you feel after you're physically active. Um, so really getting clients to speak those personal motivators that are very intrinsic. Um, and that way, you know, the second the Fitbit gets old or the second the scale stops going in the direction they want, they won't just throw in the towel because they'll start to notice, wow, I feel amazing, you know, after I'm physically active or I found this one activity that isn't so hard to schedule in because I actually look forward to it. Um, and so I just feel like that's a total game changer, right? And thinking about like what you see in the media about why to be physically active. In fact, if you, I did this the other day, I Googled benefits of physical activity and you know what came up? Reduced risk for type two diabetes, improved cardiovascular, you know, reduced risk for cardiovascular disease, lower blood pressure. And I thought that is so sad because in the moment when you're deciding, am I going to go to the gym or not? Are you thinking about heart disease? Like, <laughs> yeah, probably not. Right. And so, um, yeah, we got to help change the message that, yeah, those things are great. You know, I, I'm all for disease prevention. Believe me, I'm a dietitian, right? But um, if people, if we can start asking the right questions to get people to realize, wow, when I'm physically active, I have more patience with my kids. I sleep better at night. I'm less anxious about COVID-19. You know, those <laughs> intrinsic motivators that they feel in the moment, that's, if, if they start to notice all those amazing things that happen to them, um, they're so much more likely to make that choice, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, and I, I mean, as a fitness professional, like I'm someone who has, you know, been physically active for most of my life and uh, I've had times where I wasn't. And the one thing that whenever I, I would try to, when I was maybe not, you know, I was kind of in a slump, I wasn't going to the gym very often. Uh, if I was trying to get back and just shoot for, you know, lifting a certain amount of weight or putting on a certain amount of muscle mass or whatever, it was very temporary. But when I would start to just do it because I knew that I liked it and I would train in a way that I enjoyed, it was very easy. You know, I'll work out at six o'clock in the morning, but waking up at five to go to the gym was easy because I, I got something out of it that was aligned with who I, who I am as a person. Right. And, and I think that's like, totally. that's, that's a shift where you, like you said, people will come to us for every reason imaginable. Um, but oftentimes it's, it's almost a, a, a dance between the, the coach and the, and the client or the, the clinician and the patient, whatever it might, the relationship is, it's almost like a dance to help them kind of go from being like, I'm doing this as a means to an end to I'm doing this because it's part of who I am. Right. Totally. That's the goal, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, and I don't want people to hear that controlled motivation is bad and autonomous motivation mm -hmm. is good. They're both motivation and they're both helpful. Um, but yeah, so often our society is really focused on controlled and they're just not aware. Um, 
of the autonomous motivators or those intrinsic pieces or um, you know what it is they value and how they see themselves as human beings and those that's where MI can be so great because you're really starting to dig into the um, what it is they value and how they want to see themselves and uh, yeah what they want out of those positive behavior changes in the short term um, instead of thinking like I need to do this to prevent a disease or to get to a certain number of pounds on the scale. Yeah, I, I love that. And I think um, I think it's in your book or maybe maybe it's in Tracy Mann's book. Uh, but I think it almost ties into a little bit of like when I think about one of the most impactful things for me outside of some of the techniques for MI, um, I think the, the one of the most impactful things for me was the spirit of motivational interviewing. And uh, in it was your book or Tracy Mann's or maybe both, you guys talked about there's studies on like discrimination and weight shaming and how much that impacts the likelihood uh, that someone will, you know, uh, continue to, you know, have, maybe it's like, uh, I can't remember what exactly the outcomes are, but you know, really like it, it was like by making somebody feel bad about certain things it has a longer term negative effect in, in when you talk about the spirit of motivational interviewing, there's so much about just unconditional positive regard and like seeing people as being valuable and, and being important. Um, I thought that was something where it's almost like when you just operate in that frame, everything else gets a lot easier because you see people almost differently in, in a, like a way that like you just want to hug them. Cause you're like, I, I get it. Like, even if you're mad, even if you know, you're struggling, like I I've been there in my own, in my own way, you know, um, talk, talk to me a little bit more. Cause I think you have a great combination of understanding the, the human side and the, the psychology, but also uh, just the importance of, of folks. And like you've been saying, like the behaviors, um, yeah. I, I want to hear more about that. Yeah, I think that the weight stigma literature is at its infancy, um, but it's really interesting to watch because it turns out that weight stigma um, is probably worse for human health than extra adipose tissue. So in other words, it's the weight stigma that may be more harmful than the actual weight. Um, and, and so just a few studies have, have started to uncover this, um, which is just really fascinating. So it brings to light the need for body image counseling. You know, what if you were physically active and you, um, ate as well as you can and you're, um, in a larger body, but like you did some body image work so that you really felt comfortable in your skin and how that could prevent disease just because you're not buying into culture's obsession with thinness. Um, and, and of course, you know, stigma happens um, within society from coaches and parents and PE teachers and, you know, discrimination um, happening at the work, at the workplace. Uh, studies show uh, maybe a person in a larger body won't get a raise as quickly as a person in a thinner body. You know, there's evidence to support that this discrimination is happening. So of course people don't want to be in stigmatized bodies, right? And so their desire for weight loss makes perfect sense um, because they see themselves being on the receiving end of stigma and bias and assumptions, right? And so the beautiful thing about motivational interviewing is just like you said, within the spirit of MI, one of the tenets of the spirit of MI is acceptance. And acceptance 
is, uh, means lots of things, but just like you said, it means accepting somebody as a human being, uh, regardless of, of all of it, all of the things that make up diversity, regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of skin color, regardless of body size, it's accepting someone um, as incredibly valuable, right? And this is the kicker, accepting someone regardless of whether they make a behavior change or not. Yeah. That's the one that gets us into most trouble, I think. And so um, that takes a daily intentionality as a coach, right? To think, I value this person, whether they make zero changes or 20 changes, I value them exactly the same way. And so that just takes um, sometimes like a fake it till you make it type of stance. Um, but it's so important, right? Because, uh, and that's why I really appreciate sort of a non-diet or health at every size approach where you're not focusing on the scale or whether or not the person's losing weight. Um, but instead, just like, I fully accept you in the skin you're in, whether you're losing weight, not losing weight, making changes, not making changes. Um, you're just an awesome human being. You don't have to change a single thing. That autonomy support is also so important, right? Like you don't have to make any changes. Totally up to you. And the message from the coach to the client is, I accept you the same exact, you know, everything, regardless of all those things. Yeah, I, I think there's a Carl Rogers quote where he says, um, like once a person is like truly accepted for who they are, then they can change. Exactly. Uh, and I was like, oh, oh, like he, then there's another one. I think it's in your book too, about how like you wouldn't see a sunset and want to change the orange a little bit. Like that's like a person, like you just see them for who they are and just take it in and like, uh, really just like embrace the, the beautiful person that's in front of you, um, outside of being a person. Yeah. Yeah. You're looking for all those characteristics and qualities that are human strengths that they have and pointing them out and seeing them. And, you know, sometimes it's so obvious, like, oh, you have such perseverance. Wow. You really are committed, you know, to these appointments or you're, you really care about your family, you know, pointing out those strengths. And sometimes it's not super obvious, you know, sometimes you're with someone you're like, okay, I need to be on the lookout for mm -hmm. affirmations here. And it's not super obvious, but Hey, they showed up right? They showed up, they picked up the phone, they, um, they texted you back, they are there with you in person. And so even just affirming those small things about them that demonstrates they have the, the characteristics or qualities necessary um, if they choose to make behavior change. But regardless, you accept them. Yeah. And the cool thing, uh, kind of going off of that and, and going into, you know, like, or so like, uh, open-ended questions, affirmations, reflections, summaries. I, I think the, the cool thing also is that a lot of times because of a lot of these stigmas around, you know, wait, literally could be wait, what they do for work, you know, all of these different things. Um, sometimes by letting, giving people that little bit of affirmation, like you said, of, wow, like you actually are a super hard worker. I think sometimes it, it, it almost helps them change a story that they're telling about themselves. They maybe internalize some of these stigmas uh, and, and it actually helps them to even see themselves in a different light of I'm a hard worker. I'm perseverant. I, you know, I, I am someone that, you know, is motivated a lot. I, I've talked to so many people and they go, Oh, like what's kind of the biggest obstacle for you? And they go, Oh, I'm just lazy. And you're like, well, like, you can't be lazy. Like you, you got here, you got onto the phone, 
Like maybe what motivates you? You're, you're motivated to do something, you know, and oh, I'm busy with my kids. Well, you're motivated to be a good parent. That's a good motivation. <laughs> you know, that is exactly what you should be doing. Um, but, but talk to me a little bit about almost how, how motivational interviewing I feel like is, uh, part of it is, is helping people change stories about what it looks like to, uh, to make a change and why they should make a change and, and who they even are as a person. Yeah. And you're, you bring up a great point about the power of affirmations. It's really twofold. One thing when we provide those affirmations, when we show the client, like I see you and, and you've got this quality, it builds rapport, right? It builds that connection, that engagement between you and the client. And then the, the second thing is exactly what you said. They start to hear that they do have what it takes and that that helps change their narrative about themselves. So those are two really powerful um, reasons to use those affirmations within your, within your session. And then um, the other thing that motivational interviewing really centers on is change talk and change talk is anything the client says in favor of change. And the whole purpose of motivational interviewing is to use open-ended questions to ask the client their pers- about their personal reasons for change. And, um, and, and when we ask the client questions like, why do you want to change? You know, what are some of the benefits you're hoping to experience? How, you know, if you are successful with this change for three months, how do you think your life might be different three months from now? When we ask those types of questions, the client speaks change talk. They speak all the reasons and all the benefits of making that change. And basically in doing that, they talk themselves into change. But the reflective listening is everything. Like we can ask really great questions like that. But if we fail to reflect back the change talk, the client's going to miss it. The client's not going to hear that they have all these really great reasons to change. And so it's through the reflective listening and the summaries that helps them hear um, those personal reasons. And that's when clients have those aha moments. That's, um, you know, what is so powerful about MI. And I always like to say, you know, the motivation pill hasn't been invented yet. (laughs) There is no such thing as a motivation pill. So what do we have? All we have is um, those open-ended questions to ask clients for their personal reasons for change and those reflective listening responses to help them hear that they have really great reasons to want to make that change. And that's all we've got. And um, luckily, studies have shown that those tools actually work really well. Um, and it's, it's a beautiful way to be with someone because it's also just about being a really good listener. And I also, you know, kind of chuckled to myself and I think about, as you can hear from this podcast, I can be long-winded, right? And so a lot of us go into coaching because we love to talk to people. But really, the best coaches are the ones that talk very little, <laughs> Mm-hmm. and instead just ask the right questions and do some really um, thorough listening. I, I agree. And, and that was a, a hard thing for me. I mean, I, I am uncomfortably extroverted. Uh, so I'll just talk to any, I'll talk to the, I'll t- I talk to my dog. He, he can't, he doesn't speak. He barks at me. <laughs> that's it. Um, we don't know what we say to each other except for like sit down and stay. And he just picked that one up after two years. Right. I'm not, I, I'm a, I'm a talker for life. Right. Uh, so learning how to listen was hard, but it almost feels like when, when you're doing it right, it's, it's almost like you're being a, 
uh, like very happy detective uh, or like a very happy scientist by figuring out, oh, well, like, how does this person work? Well, like, if I ask this question, what outcomes are they coming to in their head? And then what questions can I ask and maybe we'll help them move towards, towards the right thing. What I'm interested in, in is that uh, there's a lot of stuff on habit change, right? There are books, it's becoming a little bit popular. Um, and I, I, I think one of the hard things is that there also comes a point where uh, you can kind of get the person motivated, but some people might struggle on how do you make change like easy, right? Because they might know, oh, here, I wrote Atomic Habits by James Clear. I have a billion habits in my head. Here's 20 of them that you should do. How, how have you learned how to really simplify it and like make it something they can actually do? Because uh, that's hard. <laughs> yeah. And I started off my career as a dietitian um, and I laugh at myself now for so many reasons. But one of the reasons is that I had this little form that I had my clients fill out, you know, as they were leaving my office with not one, but three changes, three changes that they were going to make between now and the next time I saw them. Um, that's ridiculous. Like nobody in their right mind can make three changes, even the most motivated person. Um, and so I think step one is, is to really narrow it down, help them narrow it down to just one small behavior change to get started. And then they can always pick up momentum from there. But that's, what's beautiful about what's known as the focusing process in motivational interviewing is sometimes clients come in and they're like, I don't know, I just want to be healthier. Okay, so, you know, lots of ways that a person can be healthier. What did you specifically have in mind in terms of changes you're interested in exploring? Um, and then if they need a little more help, we can certainly ask permission to offer. You know, some people uh, are more physically active and that's how they get healthier. Some people, um, you know, eat more fruits and vegetables. Some people uh, want to explore stress management or sleep patterns. So lots of ways, you know, lots of paths we could take today. Um, but really, what is the one change that feels most important? Um, or maybe the change that you feel most ready to kind of explore. And then from there, really inviting them to set a, a smart goal that's really small, like teeny, teeny, tiny. I always like to give the example of maybe the clients just driving their car to the gym, not even getting out of the car, but then just driving home. Maybe they just do that for a, a week um, before they actually step foot in the gym. Or maybe the goal is just to research gyms and not even, you know, get in the car. Um, so we really have to help clients find those itty bitty teeny tiny first steps that may seem um, like they're not really going to improve health. But the, the goal is like a snowball. Like, let's just start with a little tiny snowball and see how it can um, take shape uh, with more successes and more victories. And then their self-efficacy increases and they start to believe that they can be successful with change. And I'd say the challenge of that sometimes, though, is, of course, clients come in with very lofty goals, mm -hmm. right? Like, oh, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for a walk seven days a week. And so, you know, it's hard because you don't want to talk them out of it, but you want to help them see that um, setting smaller goals increases their chances for success. Yeah, I think that's, that's huge. It, uh, it reminds me a lot of like BJ Fogg. I don't know if you know BJ Fogg, but he has tiny habits, which is literally, he's like, 
he got himself to start exercising by saying, after I brush my teeth, I'm going to do one push-up. And so he brushed his teeth and then you do one push up, and now he does 50 push ups, right? <laughs> and so it's that like stacking and, and just slowly but surely chipping away, you know, it, it adds up. And I think the one thing that everybody knows is that there's nothing that will work and you do it once, like that motivation pill. Even if there was a motivation pill, you have to take it every day, right? For it, everything. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be like, you know, and Allegra is like, you know, you take it once and then your nose doesn't get as stuffy when you go outside like me. I have bad allergies. I get all stuffy, right? Like you would still have to take it every day. And so I think no matter what, like uh, there's still like this element of consistency and that's how you build it, right? Is by making that small change and then that adds up and then maybe you can make another change. And and that, that's huge, you know? Uh, and And so for you, is it something where, you know, I, I think we all have this kind of the, the downside of media is the fact that we all have this basic idea of I should eat vegetables, vegetables are good. I should drink water, water is good. But uh, a lot of times because of all of this stuff that's out there, people will come and, and maybe they'll say, oh, well, the easiest thing for me would be to cut out carbs. Oh, well, maybe that's not the best idea. And I know you talk about that in the book a little bit, but when, when you have somebody that comes in, a lot of people will want to say, that's a bad idea. Don't ever do that. Here are all these studies. You're dumb. Um, <laughs> definitely not a good idea. How, how do you, how do do you help people kind of change? I learned motivational interviews. Oh. I did that, <laughs> but with paleo. Imagine that. I'm like spitting pseudoscience at them. About cavemen, and they're just like, and they're sitting there, and they're like, I I did that to an Italian guy, and he was like, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm from Italy. You are not going to make me stop eating pasta. <laughs> yeah, that this makes is sense. fun. Let's pull out all of our skeletons today, Stan, <laughs> from the closet. I have no secrets. <laughs> Looking back, I I said some I said some dumb stuff. He was also one of my most successful clients because he didn't listen to me at that time. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah, yeah, I've gotten into many arguments with, with patients before I learned about motivational <laughs> yeah. because that is sort of our natural human tendency, right? Is when we're hearing something that's different from our belief, we want to challenge it. And learning MI is about um, breaking that really bad habit. Um, and, and so, yeah, in our book, we wrote a whole chapter on, on myth busting. How do you help clients um, learn? what the scientific evidence says without um, belittling them, without making them feel stupid, without challenging them. Um, and so a few tips that I can provide is, is first, when you hear that misinformation, um, think about the timing. Is the timing right to go there? Does it, um, does it matter in that moment that the client believes that false thing? Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's like, okay, can't really move forward unless we kind of take a look at that. Mm -hmm. um, and other times, uh, if you just take a second to think about the prioritization of the conversation, that might actually not be the best time to kind of go there. If it is the time to go there, um, simply asking a question, tell me more about what your belief is or what you've heard and where you heard it and um, kind of where that's coming from. So unpack it, you know, find out more about about it and, and what they feel. And then um, to simply ask permission to, you know, I can share with you if you're interested um, what the studies I've read have shown, um, but totally up to you. You know, it really has to be like, I could go there, don't have to, 
let me know what you'd like, you know? And, and typically patients are like, oh yeah, yeah. If you present it that way, they're like, yeah, I want to hear what you know, you know? And so um, they may lean in, so to speak. And so then you can offer in real short snips and, and, and really that's key. Like don't go on and on about the science and the, mm -hmm. the study design and, you know, but like <laughs> really short little bullets of some key information. And then to check in with them. What, what do you think about what I just shared? I realize that might be a little different from um, kind of what you were thinking. Where do you want to go from here knowing that new information? Um, so it yeah. really emphasizes their autonomy and all of it. I, I love that. And I, I, that was a big thing for me was uh, even as I started to learn motivational interviewing, I was also learning more about you know, nutrition and, and all of these things. And, you know, I was learning more about energy balance and I was learning more about all of these things. And, you know, I, I think I was jamming so many like studies into my head that all of a sudden, like people would say stuff and I would just spit data out. Like I was like a machine. It was, I was like a weird Google. Uh, <laughs> it was, it was bad. Uh, and the, the interesting thing was kind of turning that off and being like, well, what, like what, what's interesting to you about this? Like, why do you like doing it? Or, um, but also being like, can I mind if I share a little bit about what I've learned and, and it takes me out of being in that mindset of saying, well, I'm the expert here. I know everything you don't, but you know, uh, <laughs> and, and it was, it was very helpful because then people, people are always receptive. Like very rarely are people like, oh no, like I don't want to hear your thoughts. Like they're like, no, I'm paying you to tell me, but you don't have to say you're paying me. So I'm going to tell you, right. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, it's like the opposite, you know, That's um, the key and taking off that expert hat. Yeah, absolutely. So what are, what are some techniques that you, that you might think about when you are kind of guiding people towards, uh, changing, changing certain things about nutrition or, or even committing to, um, you know, look up some gyms or, or whatever it might be. Uh, do you ever do you ever help them maybe make it a little bit more simple and and how do you do that because that's something that i've I've even struggled with where they might give me this lofty thing and I'm like, well, like that can be really hard like like what well, what's the first step right like yeah, how do you help people do that yeah, that's a great question so if a client does yeah kind of um share this goal that um I feel might be a little lofty i'll um first just kind of reflect it back and then and then uh ask. Um, one of my favorite MI questions is, yeah, on a scale from zero to 10, zero being not at all confident, 10 being really confident, how confident are you that you could maintain that change for a year? And typically a client's going to say, oh, well, a year, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't know about that. Um, and so then you could, um, it, they may give it a lower confidence number when you frame it in that way. Um, and then you could simply ask what, how could you tweak that change so that your confidence number goes up? See if you can invite them to reset the goal in a way that they feel more confident or like what would get you to a 10 um, in terms of your confidence on that change. Um, so that's the strategy I use. Sometimes though, they're like, I'm a 10. I'm going to go seven days a week for three hours and I'm a 10, you know, and you're like, okay, okay. Um, yeah. So then you feel a little bit stuck at that point and maybe the client does just need to give it a try and, and come back and kind of revisit um, what went well, what was hard, et cetera. You can certainly explore potential barriers with them. What might come up for you just in the next few weeks as you start making this change. 
um, and see if there's anything there that that might be worth exploring. Again, don't just jump in and, and give them solutions to the barriers, but once they name the barrier, um, remember to ask what ideas do you have for overcoming that when it does come up. Um, and, and then you're just there with ideas only if they need them, because a lot of times clients really do have great ideas for themselves. They just need the space to sort of talk it out. I, yeah, I love that. Um, the, the change scale, magic. It's a beautiful thing. Cause then you also can say, well, why are you a 10? <laughs> right? There's, it's such right. a great, it's such a great like uh, tool to have in the toolbox. Um, and, and that kind of made me think of something too, that you talk about in the book where uh, motivational interviewing and for people that aren't super familiar with it, what I love about it is that it's, it's not a, a step-by-step -step process, right? You don't go, okay, I've asked my open-ended questions. Now I'm going to provide you with affirmations. And then you just blitz them with affirmations. Then you go, now I'm going to reflect, right? Right. <laughs> if only it was scripted out that way, then it would be a lot easier to teach. <laughs> uh, it's it's a it's it's nice because it, it it it's just tools right they're just little tools um that are that are in your toolbox and uh and so what i'd love to hear is a little bit about like when you're a, a coach like how can you help to uh support the the i guess the the belief system that we're learning and, and that we are are understanding as being kind of best for for the clients and for the world, despite what they're inundated with on social media and TV and, and stuff like that, like what what do you feel the the coach or the the clinician or whoever is in that you know in that seat of working with a, a patient or a client, like what can they do to help best support their clients to um, start to almost reframe or, or challenge uh, some of the values that they're being told they're supposed to have. Yeah, and that's a great question. And of course, um, because that's my area of interest, I, my brain goes to people's weight concerns, right? And mm -hmm. so um, because a lot of clients come in and they would say, I want to lose weight and maybe I want to sort of introduce them to a new paradigm where maybe that's not the main focus. So are you kind of asking like, how could I introduce sort of a, a new paradigm uh, that's yeah. different? what culture tells them yeah exactly like how, how can they uh or how, how can a coach basically say okay look like you know uh, this person's coming to me and you know they've been told probably for their whole life that the way that they look is going to really be the most important thing about them and not their personality and, and not um who they are as a person like the value is more in how they look than how they feel how who they are um, where do you, how do you, how do you feel like we can really like support the client through that journey? Because once they leave the room, once they get off the phone with us, once they stop texting us, it's back, right? They're surrounded by advertisements and they go into social media and they see, you know, all of these people, like, how do you feel we can best support them? Because it's a, it's a, a constant balance of, we can help to shift, but how do we make that? become something they walk away with and, and kind of sticks with them uh, over time? Yeah, it's a good question and not an easy one. It's hard. Sure. <laughs> yeah. right? I'm asking yeah. for myself. I have no, I'm, I I'm like, I'm, I want to hear from you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? I, I think um, the key is just really exploring. I like how you said a happy detective, like just really exploring and unpacking all the pieces. So 
um, let's just take the example of weight, you know, client comes in and says, I want to lose weight. Tell me more about uh, why that is. Um, but also going further, like what was the first moment you remember not liking your body? What was going on in your life at the time? Who was involved with that moment? Um, and really finding out more about where that desire is coming from. What another great question is, what do you think it will bring you? Or, you know, um, how do you think this, uh, let's say you did lose that weight. How do you think your life would be different? Um, also tell me about a time where you, um, you, you know, tell me about previous diets you've been on. What, what have you, what's been hard about those? Um, kind of taking, asking them to take you through the, those stories. Um, and then in your reflective listening, really highlighting for them um, what you're hearing, you know, and again, not, not reflecting what they're saying, but really reflecting the meaning in what they're saying and, and trying to put yourself in their shoes and, and sort of imagine what it might be, might, what it might've been like the last 10 years that they started hating their bodies or whatever. Um, because I think only after you sort of lay all those cards out on the table, are they going to be more open to hearing um, a countercultural message? Because certainly with a summary after really unpacking all of that, you could say, gosh, you've been on a roller coaster, you know, and um, I imagine it's pretty exhausting. And you're kind of tired of, of the weight fluctuations. You're kind of tired of, of the food obsessions that you've shared with me. And um, I wonder if you're open to sort of thinking about health in a different way. Um, and then maybe uh, if after I ask permission, I might kind of share, what if we had a more holistic approach about health that was, you know, less focused on weight and, and kind of share what that might look like in terms of actual behavior changes. Um, and then, yeah, checking in, what do you think about what I just shared? What scares you? What excites you? You know, where do you want to go from here? Um, but so in that moment, I've planted a seed. I've planted a seed maybe that says there's some pretty messed up things in our culture. And how about we redefine health for you? Um, are they going to leave here and completely, you know, change and rethink everything? No, not so much, but at least I've planted a seed. And um, maybe hopefully they come back and you can explore those conversations more. I think we also as coaches have to lower our expectations about what is actually possible in a, one session, right? Or even three sessions, you know? Um, and especially folks who have um, disordered eating patterns their whole life, that's gonna take years to redo, redo the tapes that they have been playing in their minds and that might require therapists and dietitians and a team of people. Um, but it's going to, it's, it's going to take years of coaching, not just a single session. And so we have to, um, acknowledge that, yeah, they, they're swimming in a certain tank when they're with you and then they go out into the world and they're swimming in the same tank we're all swimming in. So, um, it is going to be hard to hold on to that sort of a paradigm shift that they might hear in their appointment with you. Um, so we got to keep our expectations low and go for the seed planting strategy. I, I love that. Well, and it's just a consistency of, of the seeds, right? I mean, if every time like that's, that's ends up kind of being the focus of making those smaller changes. And, uh, and I think just as, as a culture, like that's how you do it is, is you just, you plant the seed with, 
with enough people and eventually it grows. And you know, that the health at every size that's grown significantly over the last couple of years because people are starting to see, wait, you know, maybe what what's out there isn't really serving me. Um, and maybe there is a better way and, and maybe what I'm seeing isn't true. And it's, and it starts with one of those conversations and it, and it, and it has to happen once. And then all of a sudden it can happen again and again, and maybe they tell their friends, maybe, you know, it, it's like that butterfly effect, right? Exactly. Yeah. One of my favorite books, um, is body kindness by Rebecca Scritchfield. And I have, I have all my students read it. It's a required textbook in my class. Um, the irony of course, is I have them read or the required textbook in my class is Rebecca's body kindness book and not our motivational interviewing <laughs> book. The one that I developed to be a textbook in my class, because you know, with students budgets, you want to be mindful and only invite them to read one book. But, um, her book's, so important because it really gets at that holistic view or vision of health and well-being. And what, but what I love to hear is they read it and they say, oh my gosh, this, this book changed my life. And now I'm going to have my mom read it. And now I'm going to have my sister read it. And so it is really fun to hear that become contagious, right? And it's really been fun to hear um, the health at every size or a non-diet approach in CNN and on, you know, the Washington Post and the New York Times and um, these major outlets starting to pick it up to see, hey, yeah, what if we had a more holistic view of health instead of being so focused on the scale? So much work um, still needs to be done, um, but it's really exciting to see this gain momentum and and start to um, really change people's life in really meaningful ways where you're starting to see change as self-care. You know, not restriction, not like, oh, I don't want to go work out. It's like, what does my body need right now to best take care of myself? And that means, you know, what do I want to eat right now that feels the best in my stomach? That also means what do I want to eat right now that feels the best in my mouth, you know, and tr trying to find a, um, a way of eating where you're honoring um, what your body wants, but also pleasure. And, uh, you know, do I need a nap right now? Do I need to take a walk right now? Really just exploring what, what your self-care needs are um, as something that can move us towards not only health, physical health, but also well-being, which luckily mental health is becoming um, more and more recognized as a key component of the health puzzle. And we know that negative mental health uh, significantly negatively affects physical health. So it's all just intertwined. And we want to be coaches that look at physical and emotional health. I, I, I just, so I take notes during every podcast. Like I have like pages of notes while I, while I talk to you. Uh, the, the thing that you just said that I wrote down instantly, I was like, that was so good was the fact that you're helping people see change as self-care because so often change is done in a way, whether they, people realize it or not. Even even like the the coach can almost do it to the client um, in that changes a way it's acknowledging that something is wrong about who you are. Like, oh, well, you need to change because of X, Y, and Z, because you're too skinny, because you know, you you're you need to lose weight, you need to gain weight because you're not strong enough. Like 
it's there's a, a level it almost pulls away that that like unconditional acceptance of a person because you're saying oh well you're not as good as you should be so you need to change but instead it's like i'm doing it because i am good enough i am i am enough so when i change it's it's a it's a act of uh almost nourishing that which is i that was like that exactly. was amazing Oh my yes, gosh. Self-love Oof. has to come. Like self-love comes first, right? And then like, it's not, I'm going to try to change my body and then I'll love myself. It's, I need to love myself right here in this moment. And since I love myself, what do I need right now? Mm-hmm. And how can I practice self-care or acts of love or kindness, body kindness for myself um, right now in this moment, because I deserve it. You know, it deserves self-care right now. I don't have to change anything to deserve self-care. Um, yeah, it's such an important message. I'm so glad, Stan, that that message came up in our conversation today. Yeah, I'm like, I'm, I got tingles. I was so excited about that one. I was like, oh, that was so good. Yeah, and, and, it, and it's, uh, I think it, it comes from uh, really like, that's, that's it. It's like, it's, it's an unconditional acceptance of the person um, that allows you to be like, no, like you're enough, you're good let's, let's like actually like, like help you really like, uh, appreciate that. And that's, that's amazing. I love that. Yeah. Uh, Have you heard this analogy about a car? I I love to talk to people about the car analogy. Like I say, pick your favorite car, like your dream car, Porsche, you know, whatever, Mercedes, I don't know. Um, Mustang. And then imagine that old beat up car that you may have had, you know, as your first car. And which one are you more likely to take and wash, right? Which one are you more likely to care for? It's, it's the Porsche, right? The old beat up car with the chip paint, you're like, yeah, I don't care if it's dirty. I don't care if it's clean. But that car that, um, you know, is the Porsche that's spotless, that's the one you're going to take care of. We have to all start treating our bodies like Porsches. And a lot of times it's fake it till you make it, right? Like you may not believe your body is a Porsche yet, but that's your goal is to start believing that your body is this valuable, um, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars specimen that just deserves the very best care. Um, and, and no longer believe that your body is that beat up um, old car that you had to drive when you first got your license. I, I love that. And that's so crazy because uh, I told you before this, like every person that I've talked to on the podcast, uh, whether they specifically like use these words or not, is they, they say, um, you know, like they take a very client centered approach. And, and I think what's crazy is like, uh, it's that analogy of, of, of the car that makes perfect sense where you're, you're really saying like, look, like, you know, you would do a better job. Like when people, even in pain science, when you describe their pain in their body as being that junky beat up old car, oh, don't drive it over 55 miles an hour, basically saying, oh, don't do squats, they're bad for your knees. Like you have a torn, you know, or not a torn ACL. Yeah, maybe you shouldn't do anything, but you know, uh, you should get that repaired. But you know, it's like, oh, you have, you have, um, you know, uh, arthritis in your knees, you shouldn't do X, Y, and Z the relationship with movement and with all these things that it's so, it pulls them away from it so much. That's, I, I, I think that's, if you take that literally, if you just take that, uh, that analogy and apply it to anything, unbelievable. I love that yeah. so much. 
It's so true. And yeah, like you said, the physical therapy literature will tell you over and over again, move it, right? Move, mm-hmm. move your body. That's what's going to help most. So that is, it's very true. It, it applies to different areas of our lives. I love that. Well, I know, I know we're coming up on time. We'll definitely have to have you back. So like, I mean, this is unbelievable. I always like to end by asking a question. Um, what do you think was, and it's a bit of a hard question. I apologize ahead of time. Um, what do you think was like the hard or the, the biggest surprise for you? If you look back and you think about your, your journey as a dietitian and you've learned so much, you've, you've written a book that I've bought for almost every podcast, podcast guest. I'd say like four out of, no, six out of the last seven, eight people that I've had in the podcast, I've bought the book for them because afterwards I'm like, you haven't read this. You just talked about it, but you didn't even like, you know, you haven't read the book on it. Like it's going to be amazing for you. You've written this amazing book. You've learned so much. Uh, where do you feel kind of the, the biggest surprise across this journey has been from where you started to where you are now? Like what, what was like that light bulb? Oh my gosh, I can't believe that. Yeah, that is a great question. And it would take me, you know, 30 minutes, that would be really awkward to sit here and actually (laughs) think about like the very best thing. But I can share definitely one sort of um, surprise or uh, aha moment that I think would, uh, and I'm choosing this one, because I think it might speak to somebody who's listening right now. But um, I think what has surprised me most is in training other people in motivational interviewing, by the way, you're like my biggest fan, Stan. So thank you so much for um, (laughs) uh, promoting the book. And every time I talk to you or message with you, I'm like, oh, I feel so confident. And this feels amazing. You're you're so affirming. So thank you for that. I mean, you, you changed, you changed my life. And as a result, I got to help change the lives of clients. And you've, you know, through, through what I've learned, I can help other coaches with it. And you know, it's, it's that, that like you put it out there and, and yeah. really it's like you've, uh, you've helped make a lot of change in a lot of lives. So kudos you. to you. I'm, I'm a fan of that. <laughs> it's really fun. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I think what's been the biggest surprise for me, and this is kind of a negative, but in training people in motivational interviewing is how hard it is to train people um, to stop the fixing or writing reflex. So the writing reflex is something um, that motivational interviewing developers, uh, Miller and Rolnick, that's the term they came up with. And it's R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, writing reflex. Um, In trainings, I like to use the term fixing reflex um, because I feel like maybe it resonates with a few more people. But um, I'm, I'm constantly sort of amazed at how hard it is to break people from the fixing reflex. Um, and so it, 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 it makes perfect sense because I feel the fixing reflex in myself often, right? I feel it. It like bubbles up. You're with someone like, Oh, I have the best idea for them. Oh my gosh. I want to tell them right now. Um, and so you can feel it bubbling up and, uh, we're all human. So we all have that. But in somebody who's trying to get better at motivational interviewing, um, yeah, sometimes I'm just sort of taken back at how hard it is to break somebody from that fixing reflex, from just, you know, jumping in and telling the client what to do or giving the client ideas without first asking the client what ideas they have. Um, 
it's almost like breaking a horse in sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's like, wow, three-day training and you still really have that strong fixing reflex. I don't know what to do with you at that point. Um, and so, but again, like I say that in humor because I, I feel it too and we're all human and this is a journey for all of us. But I think that's what's been the most surprising to me is just that some people pick up MI so quickly and some people really don't pick it up so quickly. <laughs> yeah. And so it's been really fascinating to kind of see um, that, that variation and how people respond to training. Yeah. And, and that's also like the, it's the hardest one, but it's also, I would say the most important one because it allows you to then let the person act autonomously. Otherwise you are not providing them with a space so they can be autonomous. It's like, I don't know. You got to do this. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, exactly. And I, I get know it. Some, some folks who have been, working with people their whole life, you know, um, maybe fixing, 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 fixing. And so then to try to retrain their brain, it's especially hard versus like a new graduate who's never done a lot of coaching and you're, you're shaping them from the very beginning. That's a little easier than taking maybe a fixing reflex they've been doing for 20 years and then trying to help them unlearn that. So, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, trust me. I mean, it happens with, with personal trainers too. They have like 10, 15 years of experience. And you're like, oh, uh, the reason nobody stays with you for more than a month is like, eh, like you're, you're hurting them. <laughs> you know? yeah. So yeah, that's, that's amazing. So how can people get in touch with you? I mean, I know you, you have an amazing YouTube channel. You have a, a great Instagram. You have a book. Um, what are some ways people can, can get in touch? Yeah. Um, so my Instagram handle is at Don the Dietitian. So Don the Dietitian on Instagram. And then uh, the YouTube channel is Don Clifford's MI Tips. If you want to subscribe to that. Um, I haven't been posting new videos lately because of COVID-19 and I'm not in my recording area. But um, I have over 30 videos posted there that I think uh, might be helpful for folks. And there, I try to keep them like three minutes long so that they're just little refreshers. Um, but yeah, and then uh, feel free to check out our book website, which is motivatechange.net, motivatechange.net. And um, you're welcome to uh, message us through that website. We have a contact form and we respond quickly to messages. And we absolutely love hearing from our readers um, and and. Sometimes we can arrange trainings and things like that. So um, motivatechange.net is our website. I love it. Yeah. And if you guys haven't read the book, I mean, uh, the fact that I, I buy that book for so many people, like it, it's the only book that I've bought for that many people. I mean, I, I've randomly, I'll be like, oh, like, have you read this book? It's good. Like, you know, you should read it. But this is like the one book that I consistently buy for people like coaches that I know because I'm like, this is it. Like you can if you can really grasp this stuff, it'll, it'll change everything. It'll be good for your business. You'll keep clients longer. They'll have a better experience, like all of these things. But I think also just, it makes you a better communicator with your family members. Oh gosh. Yes. That's helpful. Uh <laughs> that is like the real reason I do this work, Stan, is actually for that side effect of MI that I talk about. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, I care about that so much. Like I just care, like, my heart's work is helping people be better communicators with each other and, and seeing that trickle into all their relationships. Um, mm -hmm. That is what gets me fired up in the morning when my alarm goes off. 
Does your does your son ever go like, Mom, are you doing motivational interviewing <laughs> to me again? <laughs> I know, right? Luckily, um, he's kind of grown up with me uh, speaking in this way, so he doesn't know anything different. But my husband, on the other hand, <laughs> he knows. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, it's really, and I don't do motivational interviewing on my family members because I think that can be uh, problematic. But I certainly do um, try to be as good a listener as possible by asking good questions and trying not to fix. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been, <laughs> it definitely can help every relationship. So you're, I think that's so great that you're committed to sharing this message because you're right. It's not only going to help in your coaching life and in personal training and um, helping your clients, but it's going to help all of your relationships. And that's the reason to either buy our book or another motivational interviewing book to start that journey for yourself. Absolutely. I love it. Well, th thank you so much for joining me. I'm, uh, I'm so excited for this to come out and for people to learn. And I, I think we covered so many awesome things. So, so thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.